Welcome everyone to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and I'm joined as always by Carrie Smith. Carrie, from an undisclosed location, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Hello, good morning. I'm real excited today because um, I'm gonna let you do the intro, but I got to speak with this special guest a couple of days ago on her show. And I'm excited to say that I found another version of me, but from the, <laughs> but from in some ways, but from the the Christian social justice world, which which makes it very it's fascinating to me. So I have a lot of questions today, Carter. Great. Well, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, with that, let's that introduce her since you've talked about her already. Uh, <laughs> okay. We today we get the pleasure of speaking to Chantal Monique Dusen. Uh, Monique has a background in social services and children's ministry. She's worked with a diverse array of underserved communities. She was a missionary to South Africa for over four years, serving children and teachers impacted by drugs, violence, and trauma. She also spent two decades advocating for, here here it comes, critical race theory, but through a series of events began to see the contradictions of CRT with the historic Christian worldview. She's now convinced that CRT is not the best way to achieve racial unity and actively speaks out against the use of CRT within the church. Monique's vision is to promote a vision for racial healing based on the historic Christian worldview. She's got a BA in sociology from Biola University and is currently working on a master's in theology from Talbot School of Theology. You can follow her on Twitter at the Real Monique D or on Facebook at Center for Biblical Unity or uh, on YouTube at the All The Things Show. We'll put links to all that stuff below. Uh, with that said, Monique, welcome to Deprogrammed. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being nice you again, Carrie. Good to see you again. It's been so a cool I, like 36 hours. Yeah, it has been. I really enjoyed your show, not only because of getting to meet you, and I have so many questions I want to ask you today, but also because I've been, now that I've been interviewed about my old belief system a few times, most of the questions have become very similar, but you guys, your show is Christian focused. And so you took me off script and asked me things I hadn't been asked before. And that was really interesting. So thank you. <laughs> you know, we try. Yeah. No, so we just um, go ahead. So tell me, what's the you guys? You you guys are working on a number of different things. You've got the Center for Biblical Unity, and then the show I was on is a podcast that you do with your friend Krista, and that's called All the Things. Yes. Are those two connected? Like, what? Uh, explain some of the different things that you have going on. So they're kind of connected. We had the podcast for about a year before um, before the Center for Biblical Unity came around. So we just started the podcast because we were one day having conversations about how I felt the church wasn't, and when I say the church, I mean, not every church, but many churches weren't addressing the actual issues that were happening in communities and within our society. And I was just like, oh, I'm so frustrated. And Krista was like, well, you know we should do a podcast. And I was like, no. <laughs> and so um, she was like, well, just sit down and let's try it out. And literally that was it. And the goal of our podcast, all the things is literally to talk about all the things happening, but from a historically Christian perspective. And when we say historically Christian, we're not talking about like Christianity today and what that looks like or American Protestantism. We're looking at the early church. What would the early church, like the first 300 years of the church, what would their stand be? What would um, a, a stand against injustice or poverty look like then compared to what we may be seeing in mainstream evangelicalism today? 
Oh, wow. So we yes. have, we really, and Krista's a theologian um, and, you know, it, it's her education, but it's also her profession. And <clears throat> sorry, we look at, we do, we look at, you know, anything and everything from, gosh, poverty to people going into seminary to people leaving the church to shootings and everything. If it's happening in culture, you know, we want to talk about it and, and offer people a different way to think about it than just the way that culture is telling us to think about it. I mean, wasn't the, wasn't the concept of social justice, which I think is not what it was originally, but like, wasn't the concept a Catholic theologian who invented the concept of social justice or am I wrong? I don't know. Actually, I do not know. I know that um, there there was the social gospel that came around that many churches, maybe in the early 1900s, um, were standing against. But I don't know much about that. On the show, I say that Chris is a theologian and I'm the ordinary person. <laughs> so I don't, I don't actually know much about like the social gospel or... Um, how the idea of social justice came about. It's just a, um, more of an ideology or a, a framework that I adopted in college and upheld. So tell me about that, about where did you first start, start coming into contact with critical race theory and uh, how long ago was it and how did it, because I also came into contact with it in college and that's where I started picking up a lot of my foundational beliefs for what would shape my worldview. How did that fit with, but I wasn't in the Christian world. I consider myself agnostic. So can you explain a little bit about when you first started um, learning about critical race theory and how it melded with the church in your mind or with the gospel? Well, I have said before that I felt like I was kind of born into the rhetoric. And so how long ago that was, I have to say that's an undisclosed <laughs> year. But um, I feel like I do. I feel like I was born into it. I was born in South Central Los Angeles is now just South Los Angeles. And it was a time where, you know, it felt dangerous to be black at times. And, you know, th these were the things that I was hearing from teachers and from like my friend's parents and my mom. When, um, you know, Nelson Mandela was released from prison, I lived in South LA and, you know, the everyone who was, you know, so excited about that, but still concerned about apartheid that was continuing. There was a girl, Latasha Harlins, who was killed by a Korean store owner. And um, I think like her, her killer didn't do any jail time. And what was, what was happening with that? And then 13 days after Latasha Harlins was killed, Reginald, not Reginald Denny, Rodney King was beaten. And so that those two events then really sparked the riots in 92 because those those things happened in 91. And so I think the idea of this oppressed oppressor, whites can do blacks any kind of way, um, will never really you know, grow past this point because of the way our society is framed. I was just born into these conversations. And then when I went away to school, I went to Biola and it's a small Christian school out just outside of Los Angeles. And um, I studied sociology 
And that's where in learning the social theories, you know, what, what are the statistics? Why is this true? How do we as Christians deal with, with this social theory? How do we deal with oppression? It was more just absorbed as in, and there was a stand that it was just right. Like I should be fighting against oppression. And I believe from the, the Christian worldview, we do have scriptures that tell us to, you know, to speak out on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, like we should do justice. Yet the way that we do justice has to be biblical and true to the, the historic Christian framework, not an an adoption of a secular framework that we then just kind of slap on top of scripture. And that's my position. It's, you know, as a Christian, I don't want to just adopt something and then baptize it in Jesus and call it good. It might not actually be good. It might not be the way that Christians have historically thought about things. Can you unravel that a little bit? Like what's the, um, what about critical race theory and the modern version of social justice ideology doesn't comport with Christianity? Okay, so um, one of the big things for me is the concept of identity. When you become a Christian, there are like scriptures that say that we are now adopted into the family of God, that I am now a child of God, that we are now brothers and sisters if you're a believer you are either in Christ as a believer or you are still in Adam. There, There's just ways in which we think about the body of Christ. And in, in critical race theory, our identity is continuously wrapped up in our ethnic makeup. And if I am a person of color, which I am, then my, my identity is first in that, and that makes me the oppressed. If I'm continuously looking at people from this oppressed oppressor category, how do we ever meet? How do we ever become brothers and sisters when we are both in Christ? Now, if I take this, this ideology still from me being a Christian, but want to talk to somebody who may not necessarily, you know, hold to the historic Christian worldview, how do, again, how do I meet them? How do I have conversation? I am not that holy. Like, to, let's go have coffee. You're my oppressor. Let's go do that. No, like, it doesn't fit for my heart. <laughs> like, and, yeah. and so, but not only does it not fit for my heart, it doesn't fit according to scripture. And so this is where I'm like, you know, that doesn't that doesn't work. This oppressed oppressor, we never meet. And when you look at the um, critical theory, like in its origin, they aren't supposed to meet. It's always this: who's the oppressed and who are the oppressors? So I think for me, that's the the foundational thing. I think that looking at definitions, so racism equals prejudice plus power, technically. If we really thread that out, I wouldn't be able to be racist. I wouldn't be able to participate in racism, which is then a sin that I wouldn't be able to participate in. Um, historically, looking at you know the the first three hundred years of the church, that sin would be partiality. Um, I wouldn't be able to participate in that. But in in the Bible, we we read that all have sinned. Like I am not excluded from that just because I wear brown skin, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. I also don't believe that that Christ or that God is so caught up 
with my ethnic makeup. I think he's more caught up with the with the idea of my heart. How am I, you know, how am I treating someone else? What am I what am I doing to to stand for the oppression of any anybody can be oppressed. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you can make an argument today that white people are being oppressed. Mm-hmm. And I think you could actually make an argument that even though CRT and social justice warriors will not admit that systemic racism can be something that impacts white people, I think we can put a pretty clear argument together that systemic racism does impact white people. It, it Look at the riots. You could say that, you know, systemic racism is something that is kind of, if we thread it all the way out, impacting business owners when mm-hmm. we see calls to riot and to participate in, in a system this way. So I don't know, Carter, did I answer all the questions? I feel like I'm just rambling. No, I like it. I think you did. And I, there's something you said there about, uh, I am not that holy that I really appreciate because I think something about finding for me, becoming a a pretty new Christian and finding God and trying to behave in the ways that I think God would want me to behave or the ways in which Jesus behaved. When I try to do that, there's something about, um, I I don't know if I'm going to find the right words for this. I am not as a human being, very forgiving (laughs) in general. That's just not my tendency, but within Christianity, I've, I've had people describe me as very forgiving, especially in the past few years. And that's not me. I don't know how else to put it. There's something about trying to, um, uh, walk the walk or, uh, there's something about, about, the answer that I find in God that I don't find elsewhere and that I didn't find in my old belief system, because I think it fundamentally changes you from the inside. It's about working on yourself inside rather than all focusing on all the stuff out here. You know, it's not about um, uh, putting the responsibility or for the answers for fixing the world on the outside. It's about like, like you said, Jesus is very concerned with your soul and you know, your heart. I think you said your heart. That's, that's to me, that's the most anyone can do is to work on that part. If everyone worked on that part, then all the stuff on the outside would be, would eventually be fixed. It's like, but people don't, I don't know. I think we don't focus enough on the inside. Anyway, now I'm rambling, Well, but I like what you said. I, I tend to think of it as, you know, one of, one of my, another issue that I have with CRT is that it puts the work on me or it puts the work on you, especially because you have less melanin than I do. And so having less melanin, you need to read the books. You need to divest yourself of whiteness. You need to pay reparations, lament, repent. Like there's all of these things that, that you need to do as white people. And there are things that I also need to do. So I need to recognize my oppression. I need to basically go along with the tribalism and, you know, all of this. But in doing that, what does it gain us? Again, because of the oppressed and oppressor dynamic, we'll never meet. But with, with Christianity, there is this understanding that I can't do it that I need someone outside of myself who is bigger than myself to be able to do what I can't do. 
-hmm. someone who is sinless to be able to fix the problems that are wrong with humanity. Like I can't do that. That that's too much weight on my, my heart and my shoulders. Mm -hmm. And so as I develop my relationship with Christ, as I am in the scriptures, as I'm in prayer, yes, he's working on my heart. And that's, that's where our change starts. It's yeah. We want to change systems and we want to understand that everything is the product of systemic oppression but in reality, it's people who participate in the systems. So how do we change the hearts of people? I don't think that, you know, Ibrahim Kendi, who, who wants to legislate, you know, with the, this whole new DOA thing and all that, like the, the reality is that he wants to legislate people's hearts, but yes. you can't, you can't legislate someone's heart. A heart can only be changed through the power of the gospel. Yeah. And, and that's... Again, that's my take as a Christian who is believing in the historic Christian faith. Yeah. You're making me think of, you're reminding me of a, a quote I read a, a, a year or two ago. It, it, it was when we were in the middle of another cultural flashpoint on gun control, and it was a big gun control debate happening. And I remember I read this quote from the Dalai Lama, which was so surprising. The Dalai Lama had said, gun control begins in the heart. And he was talking... Mm. And he was basically talking about um, what you're saying, this individual transformation that happens in people rather than trying to legislate the heart, as you're saying. And it, it was so it I just it moved me. It was profound. It was it was because it was getting to what really changes culture, which is changing individuals. But um, yeah, that, I found that very interesting. So I have a, a another question for you about because people are always interested in. I, I, I'm sure you guys are hearing from a lot of people now. I'm hearing from a lot of people now who are who, whose children or loved ones or friends or family are adopting different uh, tenets of what I call social justice ideology, or maybe you would call different tenets of critical race theory. Um, and they're asking, you know, how did you come out of it? So I was really impressed with the story, the little bit that I heard of the story that you and Krista told the other night about your friendship and um, also about the the other friend that you had who came and talked to you about a problem that was happening. Can you tell a little bit about what you think helped to open your eyes in a way that even an atheist like Carter can understand? <laughs> even the dumb atheist should be able to get on. this one. Go, I'm Monique. Picking on you. <laughs> No, I feel bad because I feel like Carter, every time he wants to jump in, like, I'm talking, Carter, you're next. I feel like, oh, I know, I know okay. that, um, no, it, my, my friendship with Krista, um, and my intern at work were two, I would say significant things. And I've told this story before it's my, I had an intern at work and she came to, to not school. She came to work one day crying. Now she was at a Christian university, a small Christian university, different than the one I was at. And she was, she came to work crying, just saying that, you know, the students of color were, you know, telling students, telling white students in the middle of class, like, well, you can't answer that because you're white. Like that's just your white privilege talking. Um, she was so confused about why people were, um, demeaning her or talking bad about her, telling her it's just like her privilege or she's crying because she's fragile or she needs to decenter her whiteness. She was unaware of any of this. 
And then in my conversations with Krista, just because she is a theologian, she really challenged a lot of my beliefs. Now, I was a Christian upholding this, but I wasn't going back to the early church. I wasn't going back, you know, post the Reformation or things like that, or pre the Reformation, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't doing any of that. I, I completely thought that Christianity was the white man's religion and we needed to decolonize our faith. And that in order to be able to have true understanding of the scripture, you have to have someone who is a person of color on the team telling you, well, this is how I interpret the scripture. It wasn't until we really got into some of those questions and what does this really mean? And I, I gosh, I think I might've told this story on the show, but the time when um, I called her a racist and she like completely cried. And I was just like, I'm just giving you the definition. You know, I'm, I'm, everybody knows that the definition is prejudice plus power and you have power. Like it just, it automatically goes together. And she like bawled in the driveway in my car. And I literally sat there like, what in the, like, why? I don't know why this is, even a point of contention. Like there, there is, this is just what everyone believes. And she pushed back, but she pushed back in love. She pushed back in a way that um, was gracious and compassionate. And now does that mean that every conversation was full of grace and compassion? No, because we sure did have our fair share of knockdown drag out fights. But what we started out with was a come from of wherever you go, I go that we weren't going to opt out. We were going to be in this until either she understood my point of view or I understood hers and one of us landed on a side. But I don't think that ever happened. Hmm. I think what happened is that she saw, well, okay, there are points that I believe in that actually aren't completely right. And there are things that I believe in, me, that aren't completely right one of those things, the major thing being my view of critical race theory and how do I see humans, other people who are created in the image of God, whether they are believers or not, I believe that all people are created with, with dignity, value, and worth, and they bear the image of God. And so how am I treating other people who bear God's image? Am I talking down about them? Because I could say some things about white people. Like, and I, again, like we talked about on the show, like it would always be in like this joke and, you know, for like a a very comedic format, but what was the intention of my heart? You know, how was I really treating people who didn't, um, you know, have as much melanin as I did? And so it was, it was a lot of conversation. I remember in February, uh, gosh, that was February of this year, um, I, and this, this is now I'm, I'm out of this framework and things like that, but I'm Wait, up. how recent was it? Uh, so I came home world? from South Africa in 2018 and basically pretty immediately I was punched with, this is not the correct worldview. So I've been out of it for probably a year and a half. Okay. Um, but in February of this year, I was in Northern California and a friend's eight year old son was called a dumb white male by classmates in his class. And, you know, I, I again, I had been out of the, the thought process. I understood that critical race theory was wrong. But to me, that was just the thing that like put the nail in the coffin. Like, yeah, if you're going to come for an eight-year-old, I don't really have, I don't have much love for you. <laughs> you know, let me, let's just be clear that this, this is what this framework breeds. 
it breeds what, I think that's hatred. a good way of that's a good way of putting it of what it breeds because and that's great you mentioned the uh, the example the eight year old because I think what happens is when it trickles down you see when it comes out of the mouth of children you see what it can breed or you see where it can lead and you see what is flawed about it no matter its good intentions. And I've noticed that when I've heard stories of kids repeating what they've learned at school, when they're now learning critical race theory in, you know, first and second grade, and it's boiled down to, you know, boys are bad or white people are bad. We've heard that from like eight-year-olds. Yeah. Um, you know, parents have shared that. And it's, it's that, that I think it was very illustrative. I wish more people would look at like, what does it get reduced to when you remove all of the justifications in the academic veneer and then you teach it to kids how does it come out of the mouth of kids yeah that's very interesting uh carter did you want to get your atheist no i I mean i uh, i think that's i think that is very interesting (laughs) and i I think you're right it's the academic veneer and that's the the beauty of kids is that you have to distill it to a set essence to teach it to kids because they they can't read judith butler or actually, that's not CRT, but whatever. They can't read gobbledygook that's been, you know, five syllable words, you know, sprinkled mm-hmm. around sentences to make it, you know, extremely difficult to understand. You have to just say, oh, white people are bad because they're white. Oh, okay, I get that, I get. Um, that's very easy. Um, Monique, my, my question, one of the questions I was thinking about was, I, I got a couple because you're the first person that I've heard that have, has talked about... Um, pre-reformation like referencing pre-reformation christianity um and i'm really fascinated about why that is why like why is why is pre-reformation christianity uh the reference point and and i guess the follow-up question is i'm thinking that we're maybe in the midst of experiencing another reformation perhaps Mm -hmm. or like at the beginning of one in christianity because this the church does seem to be bifurcating very clearly along critical race lines and non-critical race lines. I'm wondering if you can talk to that a bit. I'll do my best. Um, When I was walking out of this, I needed something that looked different than the day-to-day for what I was seeing in the church. Because again, I wasn't hearing many pastors. Now I was hearing some, I'm not trying to blanket the whole church as being like horrible and awful because I don't believe that. I wasn't hearing many pastors and especially, you know, the pastors locally where I was attending really addressing things that were important to my heart, like justice issues. I've always been one that has been concerned with justice issues. And so, um, you know, I, I wanted to go back and say, okay, what did the church really believe And so I talked to a a Coptic Orthodox priest. They're one of the the oldest Christian traditions around. They they go back to, um, I want to say Mark. And, you know, but what did did they believe? Like, how do they do do church or how do they they do worship? Um, I just became very interested in things that were older than what I could probably tangibly go back to and look at things that that led me back to the original source because I wanted to know how Jesus would handle it. I, I wasn't so interested in what humans would say or do. And if these older Christian traditions um, 
were were still intact and and the the scriptures were written by people who walked with Jesus what did they believe like they were the closest ones to the source so how can i how can i understand what they believed also it was um there, and I'm going to butcher this. I'm telling you, you need, you have to talk to Krista if you really want the theology. But at some point there was like the, the split. And so you have like the, the, the East and the West. And again, this is very simplified, but you get a reformation, you get the um, Martin Luther and this whole split. But what if what we split from wasn't necessarily all that we should we should have left behind? You know, there maybe there are things that we could have left behind, but what if we didn't bring with us everything that we needed? I just oh. had a lot of questions. Mm. And again, I wasn't asking these questions from the point of view of being a theologian and understanding. I'm just I was just a regular person who was a Christian and you know, I prayed and I read my Bible sometimes, but I needed to know God, like, if you don't want me to fight for justice this way, then how can I do it the way that's closest to your heart? And so that that's what took me back way to the way back. Um, now, do I think that we are on the verge of another split? Gosh, I hope not. But I do agree with you, Carter, like you can begin to see people are pulling to their sides. And, you know, we are in this camp and we're in that camp. My hope is that it wouldn't come to that, that we would we would understand that God has so much more for us than than a split. And so, yeah. What were the what were the justifications when you were in when you were in critical race theory? Like because because Carrie, as she said earlier, was an agnostic. Right. So she could she could be all about CRT and not really give a crap what the Bible said because it didn't matter to her. But yeah. what were the justifications that other Christians used to give you um, for why critical race theory is the right way to interpret the Bible? Uh, OK, so two things. I don't know that um, anyone was saying, hey, you need to uphold verbatim critical race theory. It was just the tenets of it. So do justice. You need to speak out on behalf of the marginalized and oppressed. We are, you know, as Christians, we need to speak out against oppression. Well, if there, if we are the oppressed and we have a clear picture of who the oppressors are, then I need to be fighting in that space. Um, clear, clear, I had belief that there were clear scriptures that said Jesus is against racism. Of course, Jesus is against racism. Well, actually, you don't find that in the scripture. Now, you can thread that together through other scriptures that talk about favoritism and partiality. But I think I had some of my, my scriptures mixed up or some of the ways that I viewed them, like Micah 6a, where it talks about doing justice. Well, what are the types of justice that we're supposed to be doing? How, how does that compare to the justice that critical race theory tells me that I should be doing? I think that, that there are scriptures and people pull those scriptures and, but take them out of context they do so with very good intention. I had really good intention. Yeah. yeah. You know, I wasn't doing it because I hated white people or um, because I thought that all white people were evil. Now, if you searched my heart deep down, is that something that I was carrying? I'd say probably. But 
my on the surface, what my thought was, was that I really want to make sure that I'm using my voice to speak out on behalf of people who are marginalized. So I worked within foster care and did work with homelessness. I, you know, I've worked in food pantries. I've, all of my life has been wrapped around social service and how can I use my voice to help elevate um, the marginalized or alleviate some of the oppression of the marginalized. But I think, I think that was my motivation. I think scripture was my motivation. It was just mainly taken out of context and not understanding the original text. It sounds almost like that you're given kind of vague directives because you're not really diving into the religion so much, but you have like vague understanding that justice is important. But then the blueprint you have for justice is kind of this complete separate CRT thing. Yes. So you can get a you can get a scripture like do justice in Micah, and what'll happen is that all of the this list this litany of of what do justice is is placed before you, and so now I need to you know read the books, do this, speak out on this people group, speak out for that, you know, believe. Um, that everybody should be at the table. And, but what does that really mean? Like, yes, I want voices to be uplifted. I don't want to, to squash people's voices or to silence them. But what does that mean for white people in, in, in this ideology right now? You know, you're getting two views, actually, you're getting white silence is violence, but then you're also being told that white people shouldn't speak because of their privilege. Right. It's that's those contradictions are one of the things that probably helped me to start to leave it was recognizing the contradictions and realizing that a lot of what I believed um, that 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 it contradicted itself because it wasn't it wasn't um, intellectually honest. So mm-hmm. for example, the silent white silence is violence. They don't really mean that. They want white people to speak, but that what they mean is speak this ideology and only this ideology. They and and they don't mean and when they say like shut up and listen to black voices they don't mean that either because depending on the black voice they'll tell you well no not that black voice don't, don't shut up and listen to that one <laughs> what'd you say they don't want my black voice no they don't <laughs> shut up and listen to black voices but not Monique <laughs> and they have a very good reason <laughs> they'll have like a very good reason for each one that they don't. That this doesn't apply to, but yeah, I started to notice my counter phase. I'm not completely yeah. aware that I'm either black or that I'm oppressed. I've been black for a very long time. Like <laughs> I wake up black, I go to sleep black, I eat dinner black. You know, like they, they I, I just I've been black since the day I was born. You know, and so this idea that you're in your pre-encounter phase or that I'm just not woke, I'm not aware of societal oppression or injustice. I can be aware of oppression and injustice. Now, how I define that might be different than how someone in um, social justice or critical theory defines oppression and injustice. But I can be aware of oppression, injustice, marginalized people groups. I have traveled the world. I have seen marginalized and oppressed people. I am, like I said, I'm black every day. I'm going to be black. Till the day I die, you know, and does so Joe, does Joe Biden know that? Aware. What I said, does Joe Biden know that? Ooh, oh, I'm... girl, let me sip my coffee. Mm-mm-mm. 
<laughs> now, I don't know if Joe Biden knows I'm black or not, but I, oh, oh, that thing right there. But see, again, this is what, what CRT produces. It produces this tribalistic narrative that if I don't participate the, according to the way that someone else tells me that I get kicked out the tribe. Now, at one point, we would have considered his his views to be racist. You know, you're going to do basically what he said is if you don't do what I what I tell you to do, you know, how how do you even consider how do you consider yourself black? Like that that is completely ridiculous. Like, why is my why does my skin color have to tell me how to think? Some of us still consider that racist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is actually ding, racist. Ding, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it really is racist. Yeah. But what you'll see is, and, and I only say this because I, there was a huge thing on my Facebook feed where people were like, he only said what we all are thinking. And I was like, oh. Why are so many people thinking that? that like, it doesn't. It it that doesn't mean it's a good thing. We're all think it, lots of people think that. Well, where did we get to a place where we're thinking that now, and yeah. that everyone who who has the same skin color has to have the same opinion, um, but not white people? Do you know what I actually think is a is a currently in society is a white privilege, is that you're allowed to have whatever opinion you want, and they just expect that of you. <laughs> like it's like oh, you can have any opinion. But uh, that's kind of a privilege. They don't really? define it that way. But yeah, because, you know, if I say I don't believe in social justice anymore or I've rejected it, they're like, of course not. Like, you're a white person and, you know, this is your... They, they don't... They, it's not this expected thing that I have a certain opinion. It's almost... Uh, it's it, You know, I could be woke or I could be not woke. And it doesn't, you know, there's not this. If you don't do this, then you're not white, you know. Oh my gosh, just, I, I think you'd have to thread that out for me a little bit more because I yeah. kind of see it to be the exact opposite. I think that oh, there's really? there's so much pressure on white people to be woke, to be this way. And if you're not, and you by any small chance go against the narrative of what people are really expecting you to, to jump on board with, then you're going to be canceled, like immediately. You're I, right, you're I right, Monique, so, but, but you're not called not white. Right. You're yeah, canceled, you're but they don't say white. you're not white. Yes. In fact, in fact, they say you're just you, they say that is whiteness is that you're. Yes. You know, I see what you're being saying. your white self. You're not being a virtuous white person. Um, it, it's almost more like, for example, I think if you are in the more of the marginalized boxes you check off, the more restrictive it is and the more they hate you if you don't go along with it. So someone like Carter Carter's a straight white guy and he wears a tie. I mean, he wears a tie. Look at that tie. I know. Is this <laughs> not doesn't... is this not oppressive or what? I mean. And I was actually liking the green earlier. I didn't find it oppressive. I was noticing. I, I love it. I love his ties. He says he wears ties because you think, what, why, why do you wear them? They think this is. Oh, I don't. I hate ties, but I started wearing them when we did this show because there's nothing scarier to social justice warriors than a white guy in a tie. So that's, this is, this is my only, it's my power and I'm just, I'm going into it, right? You're sticking with it. But so they write him off automatically. They're like, Carter is, yeah, of course he has those views. Look at him. He's a straight white guy. But, but someone like, uh, we have a friend on the show, uh, one of our frequent guests, Mike Harlow, who's, who's gay and who has left this ideology. 
and oh my gosh, he's not supposed to have left this belief system. It's very restrictive. So he's treated with much more hatred than uh -huh. um, I am or than Carter is, I think, right. because, you know, he's been doxxed. They've doxxed him because, because he's, you know, what he calls it, you know, you're one of the rainbow people. You're not supposed to be <laughs> criticizing. Right. You know, I actually, system. my heart actually um, really hurts. I, I received a, a letter from a guy and he, in, in the letter, he said, you know, I just want to thank you for, for speaking out. And he, he was clear. He was like, you know, our worldviews don't align. He was like, I am a homosexual. Um, he said, I'm, I'm a, I think he was born Jewish, converted to Catholicism and is, you know, trying to understand how to, he, he was an attorney or he is an attorney. You know, how do I navigate through my job? in in this worldview that tells me I should be adopting this framework and I should be advocating for it. And he was like, but I can see all of the turmoil and trouble that it brings. And it's, you know, again, it's it's when when a framework tells you that you must be this way, you cannot be anything else. Yeah. What do you do with that? Like I it just it it's heartbreaking. It seems like there should be a phrase yeah. for that. Like, I don't know, would it be like systemic racism, maybe? Would that be a phrase that would work for a belief system like that? <laughs> the, well, there's a possibility. There's a maybe. possibility. Look at you, Carter, I like you, you go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I wanted to, uh, now that we're just having like a fun conversation about things, I also wanted to I thought say, it was a fun conversation earlier. It is, but <laughs> now I feel like we've gotten pretty casual. So. This you were it's saying earlier. Carter about how... loosened up his tie. And... <laughs> he did. Oh, is that, is, I loosened up my tie. Yeah, take it down a notch. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> now we're ready. So, so you were saying earlier about how, uh, oh gosh, wait. oh you said so I can say some things about white people, and a lot of it's in jest. But what's what else is there? Like, what is there some kind of thing that I believe to be true? Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth now, but you were saying like, what else is there behind that? And what I've noticed is in the ideology, um, it became very common for, uh, especially working in comedy, for white people to also go, go woke white people to go to this place where they, they say some things about white people. But in this weird sort of, they're removed from it way. And I did this too where it's like in, you're indicting an entire racial group that you're a part of, but you're stepping outside of it. And and I just wanted to ask if you had ever seen that phenomenon. I find it really yeah. fascinating. And even even when there's only white people around, like Carter, uh, we've talked about this story before, but there was a guy who came into a shop I, work at, I, I used to work at in Austin a couple years ago. And I had started leaving the belief system by then. And um, he was a white guy and he was from the Bay Area and he was talking about moving and he was saying well, maybe he wanted to move to Austin. But he's not sure. But basically he said, well, you know, I want to get out of the Bay Area. It's just, you know, and I, it's and I don't but I don't want to just move to Austin because there's just too many white people here. Well, this is a white person saying this to a white person. And it's in this way of like, uh, you know what I mean, kind of a way. And like white people are like this kind of a way. It's so weird to be on the outside of it though now and to hear that and say, oh, oh, so you don't like white people, so you're racist, okay. And he's like, no, like, <laughs> like it's, this, 
it's just sort of this accepted that you can talk about it. And what you're doing, I think, when you do that is you're elevating yourself in this belief system as a white person who is virtuous and better than. Um, I don't I don't know where this is leading other than did you ever see this? Did you ever see this phenomenon as well with woke white people where it became about like a kind of kind of indicting white people as a group, but setting themselves apart? Every day. Every day. Um, And I I honestly think that it's a form of internalized racism. Mm -hmm. You know, where now I am racist against my own people. Um, I think that it can be birthed out of white shaming. You know, I want to make sure that people understand that I am virtuous, that I am good. I'm not like them. I'm going to hate them because of how they do things. Um, But again, it's 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 a us and them framework. And so you literally have to participate in either the us or the them. And so I think when people when people want to be seen as good or they want to make sure that I can separate out um, and understand that they are not a part of that, then it then they, you know, use that language. But yes, I think I mean, I saw it then and I see it today. My newsfeed is, you know, filled with it at times. And it depends on, I think, what's happening in society. But it will come, it'll spike and drop, spike and drop. Um, And then as far as like my own jokes and things like that, I would, again, it would be the us and them. And just every people group does something weird. You know, or every people group is a little special, you know? And so you can, I just, I would just highlight the things that, you know, I would see, but did that mean, um, or does that mean that every person within that people group participates that way? No. And so this is the danger again of CRT is that it clumps everybody together. So as soon as I talk about, okay, look, everybody, we need to be here at five o'clock. Black people, I'm gonna need y'all to get here at 4.30. Cause I know 4.30, y'all probably just getting ready to leave the house. Now, if I were to say that, in, in a group of black people, or if I said, you know, white people going, we need to get here at 430 because you know, white people going to show up at 415 because they never late. They always got to be on time. If you're on time and you're late, you know, it, I begin to pit people against each other without even trying. I'm automatically saying that being on time is a white value which is something that the Smithsonian put out. Well, being yeah. on time isn't a white value. Being on time is being responsible. Being on time is caring for your neighbor and not making somebody wait. Yeah. Being on time is not getting left because I might leave you. So again, I ain't that holy. So, you know, it's these are the things that, that or the rhetoric that can be put out there and even subconsciously begin to train people to think of us in the us and them framework. Yeah. yeah. And it's been used, like, the, one of the things that really... I think is very devastating about this uh, belief system and the language around it. Like you're saying, being on time as white, uh, rugged individualism was listed as white, reason is listed as like they're they're listing a whole bunch of stuff as white. And um, other than being horribly insulting to anyone who's not white, uh, it also right. undermines the ability to have actual discussions because you can't if you you know if I sit down with you as a friend and say, hey, Monique, you know what? you're always late, uh, you know, I don't feel like you're respecting my time. Can you, when we're going to go to meet for coffee, can you just try, you know, like, how can I help you be on time? You are totally justified to start 
yelling at me under this belief system and, and telling me that I'm asking you to be white and I'm invalidating your race and I'm racist. And like, it, it makes it impossible to even have conversations, um, which certainly does not bode well for any kind of racial unity. But then Carter, take that a step further and look at what that does to people of color and employment. Exactly. So I have fired people for being late. Like, let's just be clear. I'm sorry, you know, I probably shouldn't just be announcing that and parading that, but that like that is part that was part of my my job. And so if you come in to work late, I could care what color you are, what are you doing to uphold the standards of our organization? How are you being responsible? How are you not having me waste my dime on your salary when you aren't com committing to what you said you would commit to? But as soon as this rhetoric or this this idea comes in that being on time is white, what do, what do HR people do? Well, I can't fire him because he's black. And so, and being on time is a white value. So he gets to show up whenever he wants. What is, what does that really look like? How are we setting our young people up to understand that you need to be on time if you want to have a job? Well, I can tell you as, or someone... do we just adopt this socialist mindset that everything is yes. just going to be equitable and we're just going to give you, you know, your pay and you don't need to work hard. You don't need to be on time. You don't need to adopt these things that to me are part of a historic Christian framework. I, if we yeah. want to talk about time, I can probably construct an argument that takes us back to scripture. If we want to talk about responsibility and the, the, the ethic of work, I can take you back to scripture. These things, to me, whiteness at one point is going to be replaced with the Judeo-Christian worldview. Yes. And, and look, I, That's I, I can... But they're ultimately attacking... Yeah, I think. Yeah, no, it is what they're attacking. But I, I can just say as a consequence, as like a very like realistic consequence as someone who's run a lot of businesses, because I've, I've seen people I've seen people do this, although they're they do it very carefully and quietly because it's probably illegal. But all the protected classes that can pull that kind of crap, well, you fired me because I'm black or gay or whatever it is. They just don't hire them because the worst thing from an employer's perspective is to have an employee that you can't fire for bad performance. It's a nightmare. And so yes. you have you have a, a protected class come in and you say, well, I like this person. I'm not sure. But if they don't work out well, I can't fire them. They're, I'm not taking a chance. If I hire the white straight guy, no one will be yelling at me for firing the guy for being late. So he's a safe bet. It has the opposite of its intended effect. And you're creating an entire group of people that it has been told, you don't have to worry about taking care of yourself. You don't have to be responsible. In fact, why don't you just learn how to sit there and get stuff given to you instead of make a life for yourself? I can't think of anything more disempowering. Come on, through, Carter. I'm just gonna go ahead and decenter myself. You come on through, Carter. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. This is, this is where it's like with the Me Too stuff too. When, when I think the Me Too was, is has been very necessary for society in a lot of ways but also just like with the other aspects of social justice belief it takes things to an extreme of like you know believe all women that's ridiculous but women are capable of lying we're not we don't live in a world that you know the justice system doesn't operate that way for oh it's a woman well she must be telling the truth like no we don't believe all women but because of that like it's similar. There are now people who don't want to have meetings alone with women or who don't want to, 
risk hiring a one or being alone somewhere with a woman or having it because the woman could say something. And if we're in a place that believes all women, the allegations alone could ruin you. Uh, I just, I think it's, it's interesting how this belief system kind of it, a lot of some, they start from kernels of truth and things that need to be fixed, but then it's like stretching a rubber band past the point of fixing things to this, this extreme where it, it snaps back and, and, and it's the same, it's, it's inflicting the same problems again on uh, the marginalized groups that it's claiming to protect. Yeah. It's like making things worse for everyone across the board. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do agree. Yeah, I, I, it's not a, it's, I don't think it's even an authentic, it's not an intellectually honest attempt to fix things. I mean, I know some people are, get caught up in it because they don't, they don't know. I'm, I'm not saying they're dishonest, but intellectually, it's not an intellectually honest way to fix things. Because if you care about, if you care about racism, for example, the antidote to racism is individualism. Like it's a racism is principally immoral. It's a wrong, immoral thing. And so the 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 way to oppose it is to point out its immorality, why it's immoral, and and the antidote to that is individualism. But if if you're not going to do that, and instead you're gonna propose some other form of racism, you're not actually serious about fixing racism. You're just getting revenge on a on a group of people or or you're getting emotional fulfillment out of it you're not actually trying to fix the problem that's my take once again i will decenter myself and you can come on through because that is exactly you know how i see it it's like um we don't repay evil for evil you know like Mm -hmm. i'm not going to to repay you with racism just because there have been white people in America who have been racist toward people who have brown skin. Um, and the idea, I don't, I would need you to thread out the idea of like individualism as the, the fix for racism. I think what, what you're saying is like the, the fix is the, the individual heart or are you saying something different? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm using individualism very broadly. We use it for a lot of things on this show, but uh, I think, I mean, morally, uh, I, if I had to morally argue against racism, it would be that you are only responsible morally for your actions. And being a certain height, skin color, ethnicity, certain number of uh, like ability, whatever it is, none of those are actions that you've chosen. So they can't be moral. Um, they can't, they, they're amoral. They have nothing to do with morality. And so um, I would say racism falls into the category of of unjust treatment of someone based on something that's not moral. It's not a moral, it's not a moral uh, thing. And, and when I say individualism, that's kind of what I mean is what you're saying, like the heart. I kind of mean like, look, you judge people based on their actions, which are a manifestation of their character, right? This is why I know white people now are not, not allowed to quote Martin Luther King, but this is why he's like, this is why he said this, right? The content of their character is important. Like that's what he's getting at. It's that it's who they are and who they are is not manifest by what color their skin is. Who they are is manifest by their behavior. That's how you manifest who you are. And that's what matters morally. Please see my previous comment about coming on through, Carter. Please just see it. <laughs> sure. I feel like I should just scoot over on my own couch. Excuse me. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'll decenter well, so myself you... now and let the ladies continue the conversation. I'm yeah, we have a deal that uh, we get to speak. Uh, I get What is it? I get to speak 20% more than Carter. 
because of is what group I'm in. Yeah, I thought it was I'm 25. Kidding. I'm joking. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 25. Um, so, Winnie, can you tell us a little bit about, I know we talked at the beginning about your podcast, All the Things. We talked about, we mentioned the Center for Biblical Unity, but you can, can you tell me how that started and what is the purpose of this center? So the Center for Biblical Unity started one day, literally I was driving down the road and was kind of just praying and felt in my heart, the Center for Biblical Unity. And I was like, what is this? I have no idea. I, and then I was like, God, if no, just no. And because I didn't know what it was, I was just like, what is this? And originally I thought that I would do some speaking and um, training pastors on how to look for critical theory or critical race theory, but that was it. I am enrolled at Talbot, which is Biola Seminary. And so I'm going to be going to school and that was it. Like I had a job. I was just a normal person doing my normal thing. I had no desire. And I'm a kid person. So kind of talking to adults, like, eh. but yeah, I had no idea. And when, let's see, first of all, when the world lost its mind and we had to quarantine, there was that. And so I was like, well, you know, I can, I guess, do a little bit more with the Center for Biblical Unity. But again, I didn't. Um, but then George Floyd happened and Breonna Taylor happened. Um, I'm not sorry, George Floyd, but Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, then George Floyd. And literally in like, six weeks, we went from 39 followers to we're at nearly 8,000 now. And so um, people just, I think were hungry for something that didn't demean them, that didn't separate them into two categories. And so the Center for Biblical Unity, our mission statement is one race, one people, one savior. We hold to a historical Adam and Eve. And so if that is true, which I believe it is, then we technically are one race. And the differences in our skin and facial features are just micro adaptations because of, you know, where we not drifted to, that's not the right word that I'm looking for, but like where we migrated to or where, you know, where we landed. Um, and so those micro adaptations, so scientifically don't make us different. It just means that there are things that are very insignificant, um, very insignificant shifts between us. And so there's that now in scripture, um, it says that, you know, out of the two groups, he, God is making us one people. And so we have one race, one people, and then one savior, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that that's what, you know, my heart seeks to promote. That's what Krista's heart seeks to promote. We are just really looking for a biblical way to have the conversation. And so from a biblical perspective, I'm not going to demean you, shame you, um, you know, see you as my oppressor, because that isn't what scripture calls us to. That isn't how scripture tells us to participate with one another. I can still speak out against injustice. I should exegete my community. I should be looking into the community to see, you know, who are the people who are experiencing partiality or experiencing oppression based on the color of their skin or, you know, how do I treat the poor? Biblically, what should I do with the poor? What does scripture say? Does it say that I give everybody a welfare check? I don't see that in scripture. You know, now are there ways to help those who are impoverished? Yes. Should we be doing that as Christians? Yes. What does that look like? Let's thread that out and have that conversation. It's just about having unity within the body of Christ from a, a perspective that is biblical. 
And I don't see critical race theory as being that answer. I I think it's damaging both for those who are believers and those who are not. And what I do believe is that everyone bears the image of God. And if everyone bears the image of God, then everyone has equal dignity, value, and worth. And I should be treating you as such. I love that. You, uh, are you guys, so, so you're doing on the podcast, you're doing interviews with people frequently as well, right? Because I think you should talk to, uh, have you heard of, in Austin, there's a group called uh, Community First, I think is what they're called. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this group? So yeah. it's a it's a private, I used to, when becoming a new Christian, what you're saying about how do I treat the poor, I was being met from um, a social justice side where people who actually are not, were not even Christians, but they would use Bible verses to try and, um, because they knew I was becoming Christian, they would use Bible verses to try and, I don't know, shame me or something. So they would talk about well, how in the Bible, in the, the how they all, you know, the part of the, uh, where they all lived together and people sold their possessions as this new church was forming. And Carter and I talked about it a bit on the show, and, we, and we, he was kind of pointing out that people did that voluntarily. It wasn't at the point of a gun. It wasn't the government saying, sell all your stuff and, you know, move in together. It was community choosing to do that. And so there's this nonprofit in Austin called Community First, I I believe is the name. It's a Christian um, organization and it's privately funded and they have created a community for the homeless that I think they have maybe 250 beds, maybe more, but it's like little tiny homes and mobile homes. And they, the people that live there have to have, they have to get some type of employment and, and pay like a meager rent to live there. But the idea is to, take people off the streets who want to get off the streets and help rehabilitate them and get them back into the community. And so in the interest of having them like move, reintegrate into the community, they also bring in people from outside, like people like me, we get to come in, they have concerts, they have things where they're bringing in people who don't live there to interact with the people who do live there. And seeing this in action, like getting to go on a tour there, I thought, this is, this is amazing. This isn't something the government could do or is doing. This is something that Christians are choosing to do. And it just blew my mind. It, it was it was something I thought beautiful and positive and a way of dealing with poverty and homelessness that wasn't just um, dropping money somewhere and saying, okay, money, do the job. Like <laughs> it was so anyway, I'm getting off subject, but I think you should you should come to Austin first of all so I can meet you. And secondly, then you should you should talk to the people at Community First. I think you I was just in Dallas two weeks ago. Um, oh wow! Okay, yeah, that's not too Texas far. That's some good food. Um, but mm-hmm. what I loved about what you said is that it was people who wanted to be there. I, yes. I believe that we honor people's dignity, um, their value, and their worth when there are requirements or boundaries, so to speak, like what are you putting forward forward as well? Um, And requirements may not be the best word, but it's like, you know, you have something to contribute. There, there's it. Work is good for our physical body, but it's also good for our soul. Um, Work is a part from what I believe is part of the created order that we were put on the earth and, and given responsibilities, given work duties, so to speak. It's part of how we were made. It's good for us. I've worked with a lot of homeless people, both the chronically homeless and chronically homeless being um, 
like those like people you might see on like an off ramp or something like that. Like like it's chronic. Like the 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 chances of them going back into homelessness after they've been uh, you know sheltered is highly likely. The recidivism rate is high. I've also worked with many people that you would never think are homeless at all. And what I found in both of those those categories is that their choice is huge. I have talked to people who you would never think are homeless and they say, you know what? No, I don't want to go back into housing. I don't like the rules. I don't like the way that I have to do this. And I've had those conversations with people who are chronically homeless as well. When we begin to institute practices that say you must be housed, I believe, or you must do this, I think we take away from people's dignity, value, and worth to say, this is what I choose. You know, if we're just handing things to people, how do we honor their ability to work? You know, we see in the in the earliest scriptures of um, like rules like gleaning or opportunities for poor people to be able to get food off of someone else's land. They could go and glean. A provision was made for them biblically, uh, um, like allow people to come to your land and glean so that they can go and like pick the fruit and things like that. But the people still had to pick the fruit. It wasn't that. Yeah you know, I can just come and glean and the the fruit is in a basket waiting for me. <laughs> no, I need to go get my ancient time ladder and my little bucket and I have to climb the tree and do the work. There's still something even in, in poverty that caused us to work. And so, yeah, I love what you said about you know, it was for people who wanted to be there. They had to work. They, there was, there, there's something that was honoring of just their their personhood. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean well, it, I love it. It's uh it's just a theory but you know you know in in as as beings on earth things aren't given to us. Like if you're just born in the wilderness, you don't get an iPhone and dominoes, right? Like you you don't you don't like you don't just get food handed to you and and clothing and shelter and the nature of humans is that we must do something to provide for our own sustenance and we're all lucky because we've grown up in a time when the thing that we do might just be type on a computer all day and we can trade that for Domino's pizzas or whatever it is that we want for our sustenance but uh, I think there's something profoundly psychologically damaging to enable people to never have to engage uh in a way because i think like i think deep down psychologically they you feel it you know that you are responsible for your own life and if someone takes that away from you and just hands you everything you actually see it even with trust fund babies right who do nothing you see psychological problems at a totally different scale than homeless but similar kind of psychological uh functioning a lot of drug use um uh and a lot of dysfunction because there's it's unsatisfying fundamentally as a human to not be contributing to your own survival. Yes. And then you do things like Peggy McIntosh and you write white privilege (laughs) because you have all that, all that excess time. I'm sorry. (laughs) She, we, we, Carter and I got to do an, we did an episode where we were looking at, uh, it was an article in Quillette called unpacking Peggy McIntosh's knapsack. And it was just about her very elite 
wealthy background and we were sort of wondering is there a is there is there something to this that like Marx also Marx himself didn't work didn't have to work mm-hmm. had a lot of time to sit and think about uh you know this this belief system and is there something to those who are who are born into that kind of privilege that like very wealth privilege i guess that that then w- enables them to move to this place of assuming that all of those uh privileges they've been given are things that people with their sex or their race share i don't know it was interesting anyway yeah i kind of but- dig at Peggy McIntosh but it is interesting I, I'd, I'd give it a bit more thought um I do have some thoughts on it but I don't think they're formulated enough yet to share but yeah 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 Monique can you give us some some like because I, I don't I don't even know what denomination you are if you're a particular denomination and I know we've we've talked about the Southern Baptist Convention being converged upon by uh the social justice ideology in the past like if if someone is a Christian who's not uh, in a church that they like right now, or just kind of looking like, how do you recommend finding something that is not converged upon by social justice ideology? Are there better, are there better denominations than others or what? Um, I don't necessarily hold to a particular denomination. Um, again, I think part of it is, is wondering if I'm honest, wondering what the Lord thinks about denominationalism. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't see denominations and things like that in the, in the early church, but I know that for better or worse, denominations have been created and um, for better or worse, you know, they may have different pieces of um, not different pieces of truth, but different things that they uphold that like styles of worship. So, you know, this denomination is going to listen to this kind of music and this denomination is going to listen to that kind of music. What I would say for people who are, you know, looking for a church is how are they upholding scripture? Do they believe that the Bible is inerrant? Um, what are, what are their views on things like partiality? Um, what are their, how are they defining justice? You know, justice is is a term that can be hijacked quite easily. So what are they, what are, you know, those in leadership defining as justice and how do they walk that out? But um, I would say what, how much of, of the structure and foundations of the church agree with the, the early Christian fathers? What, where, where, where can you find the overlap? Regarding the SBC, and um, I believe it's Article 9, where they adopted critical race theory as an analytical tool, you know, I think, again, you know, going back to the conversation, to the your, your point that you made earlier about seeing a split, unfortunately, I, I think that many churches are adopting CRT as an analytical tool, not understanding that many people aren't um, academic. And if you're not academic, and this was my case, you know, I wasn't academic. I just had a heart for justice. Um, but I adopted that framework because that, you know, it was baptized in Jesus. And so we have to be careful. And this is something that people can look for, you know, are, are things like white fragility being put forward from the pulpit? You know, are your pastors saying that you should support black lives matter? 
what is what are the the books that are being presented again you know it's not just the book white fragility there are many books that people are presenting that hold a critical race theory bend who are the people the speakers that are being platformed through the church but by and large i would say what are the areas that overlap with historic christianity and but that also requires a work it, it requires digging into the scriptures to understand how should i um be considering things like justice so yeah i i don't know that um one denomination is is better than than another and i wouldn't want to you know put that out there since quarantine, I've been attending online an Anglican church, and I love it. I, I love the way that they break down the scripture. What's the um, name of it? It's St. Matt's. Okay. St. Matt's Anglican or St. Matthew's Anglican Church. And there, there are things that I feel like, well, worship, the worship isn't my style. Like I, you know, I came from a church background where, you know, the music's real upbeat and, you know, all those things now, but what I do love about it is that the, the worship is centered on God and not me. Mm. The, the scripture, when, when they, when they give the sermon, it's just the word, like there's no anecdotes. I'm not worried that the pastor's trying to make me laugh and do all these like hoops and juggles to, to get a point across. They just say what they got to say. This is what it says in the Bible. This is what it is. But it's, it also ties back to an early church format, a liturgy that isn't so concerned with this contemporary feel of, you know, did everybody enjoy it? Um, how much was the offering? Like, there's just not this contemporary, it has to be like this feel. And again, that doesn't mean every church is only concerned with offering or every church is only concerned with, you know, these things. For me, the the Anglican tradition since we've been in quarantine has really been awesome to, to get to understand and know. And um, I've really appreciated how they, how they break open the word of God. Yeah. My, I have some friends who during quarantine have started uh, t t sending me books about and, and uh, suggesting Orthodox Christianity. And I don't know nearly enough about that, but, but based on what you were saying earlier about getting back to the early church, it, it was making me think of my friends who are kind of seeking out these older traditions and, um, do you have any, who are some other, so, so this is a church that you've been enjoying um, during the lockdown. Are there any other pastors or speakers who are inspiring you lately in the Christian faith? Um, gosh, there's a couple. You mentioned Samuel Say on our show. I like Samuel a lot. Uh, Edwin Ramirez is another one. He has the Proverbial Life podcast. Okay. Thaddeus Williams wrote a book and it's coming out in December. It's called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Samuel, Edwin, and I, along with Neil Shinvi, we all um, contributed to the book. So it comes okay. out um, December, I believe, 22nd. You can, can pre-order it right now on Amazon. Thaddeus, he's a professor at Biola in their, in their biblical studies department. Solid guy. And um, gosh, who else? Neil Shinvi 
is is good. But um, specific like and Neil Shimmy is a Christian. Let me see who else people that I am appreciating. Check out um, Krista Bontrager or Theology Mom on on Facebook. She um, theologymom.com is her website. She's my podcast partner and also my partner in ministry for the Center for Biblical Unity. Check her out. She the way she breaks down the word is so clear. Like there's no two ways about it. It's it's either scripture or it's not. And um, yeah, I think if you're really wanting someone to talk about scripture and um, like she just did a, a series on justice or the law and things like that, it's she's really clear and doesn't use all these high you know technical words and things like that. So cool, uh, yeah. And we will plug, we will put a link to that book in the comments also. Yep. That you're going to be in. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'd say um, for straight theology, check out Krista. And then um, Edwin does a great podcast as well. Sam is a blogger. But yeah. Well, thank you for those suggestions. And thank you for taking the time to be on our channel today. Do you have any final... Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with people? We usually like to go out on a positive note. And yeah, let's you have Carter to inspire injects. us all now, please, Monique. Yeah. Make us all happy to end. Well, um, I think my my last thought would be that we are more alike than we are different. And we don't have to give in to the culture's rhetoric in order to promote unity or stand against injustice or racism. And those things happen, injustice and racism can happen across the board. It's not something that only impacts me. Um, it can also impact people with less melanin than me. But having the understanding that as image bearers, we all have dignity, value, and worth, and we should treat each other from that with honor from that perspective. I think we'll get a lot farther with unity that way than we will with critical race theory. I like that. That's a good ending. That's a, that's a good way to leave us. <laughs> well, uh, Monique, thank you very much for taking the time. I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I know Carrie did. And uh, Thanks for having me on, you guys. Yeah, I yeah, loved it. Sure. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. I have calculated a 98.5% chance that these individuals are on the wrong side of history.
If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Why choose between liberty and security when you can give up both? Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.